Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. We shall not go to heaven sailing along with sails swelling to the breeze, like seabirds with their white wings, but we shall proceed full often with sails rent to ribbons, with masts creaking, and the ship's pumps at work both night and day. We shall reach the city at the shutting of the gate, but not an hour before. Those are words by the great preacher of 19th century London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I have the privilege today on the Beeson Podcast of talking about Spurgeon and his works and his theology with a fellow scholar and a fellow teacher who also happens to be my son, Dr. Christian George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, Christian. Thank you, Dad. Wonderful to be here. Well, you know, um, you've just completed your doctoral work at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Tell us a little bit about uh, how that experience was, with whom did you do your work on Spurgeon, and kind of you were there for three years, sure right? Sure enough, yes. St. Andrews, Scotland is uh, a medieval little town that has at its center the popularity and the reputation of uh, containing the relics of St. Andrew. So it's a it's a it's really even to it's not a city it's so much of of a, of a village by the sea and it's a wonderful place to study uh, it's a it's a place of great history it's a place of uh, antiquity and I went there to study Charles Haddon Spurgeon this great Baptist figure this uh, this great preacher with a man named Stephen Holmes who's a Baptist scholar and uh, just a wonderful uh, supervisor and mentor. And uh, it was just an excellent experience. I would I would highly recommend it. Now, I want to go right to the topic of your dissertation, uh, which uh, I think will become a book uh, very soon, and that is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Who was C.H. Spurgeon, and why was he significant? Yes. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was, um, by all accounts, the most popular preacher in the Victorian world. He sold approximately 56 million sermons, um, during the course of his lifetime, he produced approximately uh, the words equivalent to an Encyclopedia Britannica. More words have been offered to the literary world by Spurgeon than any other Christian author, uh, living or dead. So he's this uh, incredible Baptist figure um, who was born in 1834, the same year that uh, William Carey died. So in one sense, God took a saint from the world and he replaced him with, with another, a great Baptist preacher. Spurgeon, uh, was, his popularity was ubiquitous throughout the world. The schoolchild in America was once asked, you know, who is the prime minister of England? To which the young child replied, well, C.H. Spurgeon, of course. <laughs> so that sort of gives you a sense of how popular he became. There's hardly anyone today that, that would enjoy the same sort of popularity. And his works were translated into all different languages of the world, right? Many languages, over 40 languages they were translated into. Uh, people were reading uh, Spurgeon in Tennessee, in Africa, in Australia, uh, the Aborigines, 
uh, prisoners in Jamaica. We have we have accounts of people awaiting trial, about to be uh, executed. We're reading Spurgeon and finding uh, God's grace even in the midst of those storms. Now, on one of our trips to England, you and I visited the place where Spurgeon was converted. We found a little church on Artillery Lane in the city of Colchester. Tell us about that church and about his conversion that snowy, snowy day. Yes. Uh, Spurgeon was born in 1834, but he often says that he was born again at the age of 15 in this little church. It was a snowy day, and he was going to his normal Baptist church when uh, he became very lost. And he found himself uh, in this storm uh, trying to find shelter, and he was, he was very cold, and he found warmth inside a primitive Methodist church on Artillery Street. And he walks in all uh, – he talks about being in rags and soaking wet, and he sits down in the back pew, and this old shoemaker preaches this great text in Isaiah, uh, look unto Jesus and and be ye saved. And he says, you know, for the first time in my life, I looked to Jesus and found grace for my life. And it was a life-changing moment for Spurgeon. Look and live. Look, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. So is. that text on that snowy day in winter in Colchester, England, was used by God to bring alive to faith the person who would become the greatest preacher of his era and one of the greatest preachers in the history of the Christian church. Certainly. Uh, we, we think of Spurgeon as a preacher, and uh, you're interested in Spurgeon the preacher as well. Uh, what was so unusual, what was so unique that made Spurgeon such a distinctive voice that gave him a platform for proclamation that was unparalleled in his day? Yes. Uh, well, his day was filled with great sermons. Uh, they, they used to say that the Victorian age was an age of sermon tasting, much as people would uh, taste the waters uh, they would they would uh, basically church hop. They would go from church to church, listening for great sermons. and And Spurgeon was just above and, and beyond. Uh, he was head and shoulders above all the other. Preachers. Was it his voice, the way he spoke, or I mean, what 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 was so magnetic about it? You him? know, I think it was a perfect storm of things. He preached with color. Uh, he he made Christ uh, come alive for the poorest of London's lower middle class population. Uh, he preached Christ incarnationally. He, in the in the proper sense of the word, he put flesh on faith um, and bones on Bibles. He made people see what he was saying. Uh, but if there was one characteristic about Spurgeon's preaching, I would say it would have to be his Christocentricity. Mm. He was a Christ-centered preacher through and through. Uh, my wife and I sometimes watch this show, CSI New York. And it's always interesting to see uh, these criminal scene investigators dusting things for fingerprints, doorknobs and desks and pages. And, and uh, you know, Spurgeon in a lot of ways is like a, a crime scene investigator. He believed that Christ's fingerprints were on every single page of the Bible, Old Testament included. And so he dusts the scriptures, uh, recovering Christ's presence in the Old Testament. And that's unique. Now, I want to just pursue that for a minute because, you know, you're talking here about what we call hermeneutics today, the the science of interpretation, how you really understand what the Scripture is saying. And and there is a whole train of thought, uh, not only in kind of modern liberal historical critical uh, studies of the Bible, but also even among some very strict conservative uh, evangelicals who would disparage that kind of Christological a layering of the Old Testament and say, no, you know, it's the history, it's the context, uh, and you don't need to keep, you know, finding Christ under every rock. What would you say to that critique? What would Spurgeon say to it? Yes, well, Spurgeon's often critiqued on this on this very point, uh, sometimes legitimately, sometimes I think illegitimately. Uh, Spurgeon believed that 
yes, the scriptures should be interpreted in a literal grammatical sense. And what I mean by that is it has a plain reading. It has what the reformers called a literalist census. It had a, um, a literal sense, uh, but it had more than that. He looks at Luke 24, and he sees Jesus unpacking himself in the Old Testament, and he, he imitates that. You're talking about the text where Jesus says uh, that the prophets and the psalmists uh, talk about him and tell him on the road to Emmaus. That's exactly right. He begins in the law and the prophets, and he shows how Christ it's, – it's not eisegesis, it's proper exegesis. It's exposing Christ in places where he legitimately exists, and Spurgeon does a great job at that. Uh, Spurgeon is able to find Christ in, in a lot of areas uh, in what I would call legitimate her- hermeneutics. Now, uh, we think of Spurgeon as a preacher, and I, I suppose most of the things that have been written about Spurgeon have focused on his preaching. Uh, I know our colleague of Days Gone By, he's now with the Lord, Dr. Louis Drummond, wrote a very uh, well-known book called Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. You think about Spurgeon the preacher, but your dissertation actually focused more on Spurgeon as a theologian. Was Spurgeon a theologian? You know, this is a part of the what, what some people might call a new perspective on Spurgeon. Uh, he was a theologian. Uh, yes and no. That, that would be a better answer. No in the sense that he's not a systematician. He's not a Calvin pursuing uh, theology through the lens of an institute or a Bart. Um, so no in that sense, uh, but yes in the sense that he is doing theology. Uh, he's doing theology how? He's doing it in his weekly sermons. Uh, you could use the word organic, not in the sloppy sense of the word, but in the spontaneous sense of the word. His theology is emerging in the weekly routine of preaching and letter writing. He wrote 500 letters sometimes a week, uh, preached often 10 times a week, a new sermon every every time. Uh, and so in many ways, like Martin Luther, his theology has to be understood uh, in organic terms. You know, as a young man in, in Cambridge, he had an appointment with a, a great educator, uh, who uh, Dr. Angus, who was the head of uh, Regents Park College, yes, a Baptist theological school in, in England, and was uh, interested in going to that school. But somehow their wires got crossed at that meeting. They never actually met face-to-face. They both left at different times, not ever having spoken. And as Spurgeon was walking back across Midsummer Common in, in Cambridge, England, he heard a voice saying from the Scriptures to him, Seek great things for thyself, seek them not. And he took this as a sign from God that he should not pursue formal theological education. That's right. And he never did. And yet you would have to say he was awfully well self-taught, wouldn't you? Extremely. Uh, Spurgeon was reading Greek and Hebrew, and uh, he was familiar with Latin and French. He struggled with German. Uh, he didn't <laughs> have a lot of patience for sort of German neologists, as he, w- as he would say, so he didn't care for their language, but he knew enough to sort of make sense of it. And this was a sovereign, serendipitous situation. Uh, you know, this, this girl invites uh, Spurgeon into one room and Joseph Angus, who you mentioned, into another room. And uh, the two coexisted there, never never to meet. And Spurgeon took this as a sign of providence. He's not supposed to go to Cambridge. But now, he wasn't against education, even in a formal sense, because he actually started a school for pastors, right? This is an irony in Spurgeon's life. Um, he wasn't so much given to uh, a secular education. He was involved in training preachers uh, who could preach. Uh, training missionaries. He had um, unbelievable students at that school, Jamaican slaves, slaves from the United States. Um, He was an abolitionist uh, in a a lot of ways uh, through his theological education. 
Well, let me ask you this about Spurgeon as a theologian. Uh, how would you characterize his theological point of view, or where would you put him on the theological spectrum? You know, when Spurgeon was a little boy, um, his parents sent him to live with his grandfather, uh, James Spurgeon, who was a Congregationalist independent pastor uh, in the heart of Essex. And Spurgeon's grandfather had a study in the attic where Spurgeon often retreated as a small child. And one of the things Spurgeon liked to do in this attic is to read these Puritan tomes, Puritans like John Bunyan. Uh, I believe he read Goodwin, Thomas Goodwin there, and John Flavel and, the, and these guys. And so from a very young age, uh, Puritanism was baked into his consciousness. Uh, he was a – he has been called uh, the last of the Puritans, you know, the ultimus uh, puritanoram. He's, he's someone who continues that tradition, but he does more than just regurgitate Puritanism. And this is his genius. Uh, he renders it. He translates it. In many ways, he continues the impulse of the Reformation, and he translates the scriptures so that even the common milkmaid can understand the gospel message. And that's really what I'm, what I'm interested in. How did Spurgeon communicate Christ to his surroundings? Now, you mentioned his preaching was sort of Christologically focused in a very direct way. It's hard to miss it. Uh, how would you characterize Spurgeon's Christology? In my thesis, I unpack that question um, in three dimensions. I talk about it ontologically, so that means who is Christ, the being of Christ? What is the hypostatic union? How does the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ coexist uh, those are some questions that I tried to answer ontologically. I also tried to answer that question uh, functionally. What does Christ do? And also uh, exegetically, where do we find what Christ is and, and what he does? And uh, Spurgeon fits very, very much in the Chalcedonian Christ Christological tradition. He holds to the Chalcedonian creed. And in that sense, I, I tried to show how Spurgeon fits into broader Christological traditions, uh, a broader context you know, most people think of Spurgeon as a Puritan, uh, but where does he get that? Uh, there's more to Spurgeon than just, than just Puritanism. And as I was following that rabbit, attention emerged in my texts. I found that attention exists between Spurgeon's rhetoric and his Christology. Uh, he follows an Alexandrian model that believed in the dual uh, levels of, of meaning in the text. And so he uses these wild experimental metaphors talking about Christ. Uh, at some points, uh, uh, it becomes theologically unstable. So it's really interesting to hold those two things in tension while looking at Spurgeon's Christology. Is one way that Spurgeon accomplished that, I mean, he was such a genius. I mean, can normal preachers preach like Spurgeon? I mean, you know, he, he just is able to do this, and as you say, stay orthodox, stay within the parameters of the historic Christian tradition. And yet, a lot of people who, who do this kind of preaching uh, seem to wander away and not come out. They don't sound like Spurgeon. No, they don't. So what's wrong? Well, Spurgeon once said that he could hold up to eight thoughts in his brain and select one as from a shelf. <laughs> uh, if a preacher can do that, maybe uh, he could do what Spurgeon did. I mean, he was a genius. Uh, he was um, in the he did in theology what Bach did with music. Uh, he was uh, a Leonardo da Vinci of the pulpit, and that really does come through in holding these two things in tension. 
Now, you, we've talked about Spurgeon the preacher and Spurgeon the theologian, but uh, let's talk for just a few minutes about Spurgeon the pastor, because, of course, uh, he was a pastor as a, a young young lad in Water Beach, a town just not very far from Cambridge. And then later he moved to London and uh, at New Park Street and then eventually the great Metropolitan Tabernacle. Say a little bit about Spurgeon's own um, pastoral work and his vision and how people saw him in that role. Yes. Uh, well, you have to understand, first of all, Spurgeon was a country lad. He was, um, to use a, a colloquialism, he was a redneck. He was someone who was um, from the country. He, he wore these exotic clothes. His wife, Susanna, used to make fun of him, more or less, for carrying the spotted handkerchief with him into the pulpit. And after they were married, that quickly uh, dissipated. So he was a country bumpkin of the, the Victorian age. Sure enough. Uh, it was difficult for the city to take him seriously. And you find this in newspapers. You know, one newspaper said that he was vulgar and theatrical, and another, as I recall, the Ipswich Review said uh, he was on the most intimate relations with Satan himself. Ah, now uh, I think you you told me that one time Spurgeon actually sort of came down the banister of his church or something. That, you know, that really surprised me. I would associate that with Billy Sunday a little bit later in America, but Spurgeon did that, right? He was describing. Uh, in words, how sinners uh, go go to get to hell if they're not saved, and he just couldn't do it well enough with words, so he flung his uh, 18-year-old leg across the banister of his pulpit and uh, slid about 15 feet to the bo- to the bottom of the platform, showing how sinners slide, you know, into hell. Absolutely, I wouldn't want him to do that. Beast in Divinity School, <laughs> not in Hodges Chapel. But uh, anyway, he's in our chapel, by the way. He's he's in our great cloud of witnesses. He's one of the 16 figures in the history of the church that looks down on us every time we meet to worship, though I'm not sure he would necessarily like being up there because he wasn't a great fan of artwork in churches, was he? No, sir. He comes from that Puritan tradition that did um, resist uh, visual portrayals, and yet at the same time, uh, he paints pictures with his paragraphs, with his words. Uh, he's an artist uh, at the very core of what he says, and uh, there's, that's another tension that emerges, and certainly in that tradition. You know, there is a kind of revival of interest in Spurgeon, both from an academic uh, point of view, kind of your your study yourself and others who've, uh, who've begun to be attracted to Spurgeon, and also his writings are still being published today uh, in English. Uh, thousands of pages of Spurgeon every year are purchased and bought and sold and read, we hope. Uh, why is this? Here, here's an old, stodgy, a little bit eccentric, quaint, 19th century um, orator, preacher, uh, who still seems to have resonance here in the postmodern 21st century. Why? Spurgeon never gets old. Helmut Thielicke, the great German theologian, once said, uh, this old bush from London still burns and shows no sign of being consumed. Uh, he was on to something. Spurgeon's language, uh, a lot of people like to quote Spurgeon. Uh, you read a wonderful quote about, uh, you, know, you know, Christ with us in, in the storm and, and the way to heaven is tur- turbulent. We shall not get to heaven sailing along with sails, swelling to the breeze like seabirds with their white wings, but we shall proceed full often with sails rent to ribbons, with the masts creaking amid the ship's pumps at work both night and day. We shall reach the city at the shutting of the gate, but not an hour before. 
And in Spurgeon's life, you know, the sales of his life were rent to ribbons. Uh, he suffered terribly as a pastor from depression. Today, we would probably treat him for chemical or clinical depression. Uh, Peter Morden has followed this, uh, this idea in his, in his very excellent thesis. Uh, so he's compassionate. He teaches us many things about what a pastor should be in this day and age. Uh, you know, we live in a time of increase. We live in a time uh, where my, the younger generations, my generations, have been given permission to be narcissistic. It's a very interesting time to live. YouTube, it's about you. Uh, Facebook, you're, you're the celebrity. Spurgeon has something uh, to say to us today. He was very successful. He was a celebrity. Uh, people were making postcards of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and yet he never sought it. He understood that the way up is the way down, uh, that faithfulness to God is more important than success. We're almost out of time, but I wonder if you'd uh, just uh, speak a word to our podcast listeners about a discovery you have made. It sounds very, very exciting in the field of Spurgeon studies. In 1857, sure, uh, Spurgeon said that he wanted to release a volume of 11 journals of his earliest works, um, but due to the pressure of his of his job, he was unable to do that. And while I was researching at Spurgeon's College uh, in London, South London, uh, I came across these 11 journals that have escaped publication for 150 years. And... Um, the notebooks are of his earliest work. They show the early Spurgeon, not the polished preacher that we sometimes assume. This and was before he came to London? Before he came to London mm-hmm. as a 14, 15, and 16-year-old. And, uh, and so I'm transcribing over 1,000 pages of, of unpublished documents, and hopefully it will benefit uh, not only the academy, but uh, it's my hope to benefit the church as well. Uh, you've just taken a new post yourself as a teacher. Tell us about where you'll be teaching starting uh, this, this coming fall. Yes. Um, I've been hired uh, at Oklahoma Baptist University, which is about 30 miles from Oklahoma City. A great Baptist school. I'm very excited about it. And... Um, I feel very honored to to be there. Well, God bless you in your service to Christ, in your teaching ministry, and in your devotion to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his legacy for us today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational, evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.